According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. We're in the last portion of the chapter, verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39. A couple weeks ago, we dealt with the warning passage in verses 26 through 31, and we agree that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God that the warning is uh, the fourth of the five warning passages, and it's a very dire warning to fall into the hands of the living God. This is not a threat to take away your salvation. This is not a threat to throw you into hell for all eternity. This is a warning that when you defy God's priestly function for your Christian walk, that you are in his hand for his temporal life administration of discipline. And uh, we are those who serve the living God, and as the living God deals with us in time, we have the terrifying expectation of judgment. And so, uh, really, verses 26 through 31 are more frightening than people think. When they think it's a, it's a loss of salvation threat, they're missing the point, and they're failing to be scared of the right thing they should be scared of. None of us should be scared of, of going to hell. If you're a believer, you're a believer, you're eternally secure. But the uh, terrifying thing is uh, to be in his hands, the one with whom we have to do, and that is a present reality for our priestly function. Moving on this morning, remember the former days. I'm going to open with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, thankful for your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God that uh, has been made available for each one of us. I thank you that we have a Greek canon of Scripture added to a Hebrew canon of Scripture, and we have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit to indwell each one of us and to open our eyes to lead us in uh, even the deep things of God. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again to teach us, to feed us, to bless us as we humble ourselves before your truth. Minister your word to our need. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in the follow up to the warning, we have the imperative to remember. Remember the former days. And I love this. This is a great contrast. We recently had uh, in the book of Philippians, we recently had forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And so there are passages of scripture whereby there are forgetfulness imperatives. Uh, It's not absolute though, because there are other passages of scripture that have remember imperatives. And we're accountable to rightly divide the word of truth and forget what we're supposed to forget and remember what we're supposed to remember and make the appropriate applications. So this morning we're told to remember. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I'm going to stop there. The context will take us all the way down through the end of the chapter, verse 39. But for this morning, let's just pick up where uh, we're dealing with here. If I have this correctly. Oh, that's last week's. That's all right. Jonathan Edwards got a lot of mileage out of sinners in the hands of an angry God. We have... uh, sinners in the hands of the living God. And there's no mention of anger in this verse, but we are in the hands of the living God, whether we want to be or not, we are. And he deals with us because judgment begins with the house of God, that expectations are high. To whom much is given shall much be required. And we have been given more than any believers have ever been given in the history of mankind. 
So this verse has, no, has terror on our part, but no anger on God's part. He is the living God. We are living stones who should be presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Dealt with that a couple weeks ago. God has always been the living God. Old Testament believers knew he was the living God, but for us, he is the God who died and now rose again. That is the person of our Savior, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He who died and now lives again. So we serve the living God with a much, uh, I think, more poignant, is that a word? A much more uh, significant recognition as to where we are in the church age. All right, here's where I left off. Remember the former days. Do you remember the former days? This is not all Lang Syne. This is not uh, to uh, create idolatry out of the good old days and then lament over how things are bad and getting worse. But this is to recall the faithfulness of God in the earlier testing. As an extension of the fourth warning, the Hebrews epistle recipients are instructed to remember their early days as New Testament believers. Their early days as New Testament believers. When he says, remember the former days, he's not talking about remember how your life used to be like before you got saved. He's not saying that. In this context, clearly, when he says, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. So this is a post-enlightenment former days that they're called upon to remember. As far as your former days before you were enlightened, your former manner of life before you came to faith in Christ, uh, that's not what this passage is dealing with. I think Paul deals with that in Ephesians 2. There are other passages whereby it is useful to remember from what you got saved out of. There are other uh, passages that will teach that doctrine. It's just not this passage here today. But the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. It was the circumstance for these readers. Indeed, it was a circumstance for many first century believers, particularly the crossovers among the Jews, that when they named the name of Christ, they were in for a lot of persecution. They were in for a lot of trouble. And so when they named the name of Christ, there was a price to be paid. Even during our Savior's ministry, there was a price to be paid. A lot of the disciples wouldn't confess him openly for fear of the Jews, that if they did confess him openly, they would be kicked out of the synagogue, for example. And so they were secret disciples during our Lord's ministry. And that didn't change after our Lord ascended. It was very common in the, in the first century, in the early stages here in the book of Acts. We'll see it here in Acts chapter 6. We can turn there that the, uh, they, they paid a price. And it, it seemed like they were abandoning Moses. They were accused of being traitors to the law, traitors to the Jewish race, traitors to Moses when they were being faithful to Moses because Moses is the one who said, after me is coming a prophet like me, listen to him. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. I think there, of all the chapters we could turn to, this one is useful for several reasons. Uh, mostly because uh, we believe that the audience for the book of Hebrews are themselves largely uh, converted priests, that they themselves were Old Testament priests that accepted the truth of who Jesus was as the Messiah. Because everything that's given in the book of Hebrews comes in a priestly uh, realm, in a priestly uh, uh, scope that the readers are attuned to, that they would uh, accept and understand. And so here in Acts chapter 6, we have the first deacons and, uh, and the, uh, the things here. Um, in fact, we glean a lot of principles out of these first six verses for our church constitution, for example, and procedures for members and deacons and elders and things there. Um, I won't get into that this morning, but notice in the process of this, I'll just say from verse 1, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. All right, so what do we learn? <laughs> yeah, more people, more problems. All right, but that's all right. That's, the way, that's God's business. He does that. Uh, but at, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. And so we have the appointing of the first servant deacons, the first table servers, and uh, they are going to take care of the issues here between the Hellenistic widows and the Hebraistic widows. And uh, they get named in verse uh, 5 and Notice 
Uh, These they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Some people think that it's democracy in action, that they were nominated by the members. That's true. They they were nominated by the members because the apostles told them to nominate uh, from among the members. But they did so in a delegated responsibility. And then when they brought forth the nominations, it was still a top-down appointment that the apostles prayed over them and laid hands on them. They They were not made deacons by the members. They were made deacons by the apostles. And then verse 7, the word of the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And you go, wow, tell me more. <laughs> and you look to verse 8, but the story moves on to something else. You, you, we want more words in verse 7. In fact, we want a whole chapter to expand verse 7 and we don't get it. We don't get any expansion of Acts 6-7 until, I believe, the book of Hebrews is written. That The book of Hebrews is written to those very same priests, the large number of priests that had become obedient to the faith. All right, and these are the expressions that are used. And I think they're, they're used this way on purpose. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Then we have Stephen, full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. He was the first deacon and the first martyr. No accident on that. But now notice uh, verses 9 through 14. There's conflict. There's conflict when you name the name of Christ. So some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and argued with Stephen. So we have conflict on on behalf of those that are naming the name of Christ, on behalf of those that are enlightened. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly introduced, induced men to say, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So you know your argument's going poorly when you have to resort to the underhanded, uh, you know, the skulldudgery of of, uh, lying and false testimony, perjury, uh, when you can't, uh, when you can't contend, you can't cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You know, I would ask anyone here this morning, does God's wisdom need to be coped with? (laughs) Does the Holy Spirit need to be coped with? Are these things problems that you have to overcome? No, they should humble you. You should be uh, responding like, wow, what wisdom, what truth from the Holy Spirit. I must be wrong. I must change my views. I must understand what's, what's the issue here. No, so they secretly introduce uh, these, these uh, perjury uh, witnesses. And then they stirred up the people. So, you know, that adds to your argument if you get the mob in a frenzy. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Now, was he doing any such thing? Of course not. And we actually get a verbal testimony from him in the content of chapter 7. Anyway, this is the accusation. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Not exactly what Jesus said, but they heard what they heard, and that's how they took it. And so there you have it. But fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And it's curious to me, even in the midst of conflict, even when darkness is railing, the, um, just the testimony of a believer who knows the truth, who speaks the truth in love, the uh, testimony of a, of a faithful brother that's, uh, that's serving the Lord, even in difficult times, that itself becomes a witness. Well, as it says in Hebrews 10.32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. And this is a good illustration of what that may have been like for the recipients of the Hebrew epistles. Being enlightened. This phrase, being enlightened, it's useful. I think it's useful in this context. It's useful in the early chapters of the book of Acts 
where certain numbers were added to their numbers, we're told. Uh, These are idioms that we won't necessarily use today uh, because they're idioms that can encompass one of two different things. It could be a flat-out salvation experience. It could be the conversion from being an unbeliever to being a believer. But it also could very well be the conversion of being an Old Testament believer and crossing into a New Testament understanding. And so I call those the crossovers. That in the first century, you had, in the book of Acts, you had crossovers as well as converts. And I, I try to keep those distinct, and it's worth considering that there are a number of Old Testament believers who do not cross over into the New Testament church. They are born again, they have eternal life because they were saved before the cross. And they were saved looking forward to the coming Messiah. But then, most of the Pharisees is is the best example for this, they were so steeped in their pride, so steeped in their arrogance and in their uh, what's falsely called knowledge, that when they came face to face with the Messiah, they rejected Him. They rejected Him. Are we following? So they're saved, maybe even from their childhood. I think Paul, I think Saul of Tarsus was saved as a boy in Tarsus. And these, these, these Jews were saved looking forward for the coming Messiah. And so they're born again. The human spirit's made alive. They're given eternal life. They're born again. They're, they're believers. But then in their adult religiosity, they come face to face with Messiah, with Jesus, the Nazarene. Notice how scornful they are to call him this Nazarene. You know, this Nazarene. He's not like he came from Jerusalem or Judea. He didn't go to the great rabbinical schools of, the, of, the, uh, of uh, Hillel or Shammai or any of those. This Nazarene. And so they rejected Jesus. And, if he, and that's something I think a lot of folks don't think about, how a believer in the Old Testament could reject Jesus just there looking at him and hang him on a cross. See. Now, what happens to those believers? Do they lose their salvation then for rejecting the Christ? No, no one loses salvation. Eternal security was true back then as it's true today. The fact is, though, is that they died as Old Testament believers and they have an eternal inheritance as an Old Testament believer in Israel when they could have had an eternal inheritance as a New Testament member of the body of Christ they could have crossed into the church age as a member of the body of Christ and had and been fellow heirs with the heir of all things. They could have been fellow heirs uh, with the saints in heaven as you and I are in the body of Christ. All right. So we have the phrase in Hebrews 10 about being enlightened. It can refer to a salvation moment and some of the readers undoubtedly were. Some of the readers were undoubtedly unbelievers who got saved and we would say they were enlightened. Others of them would have been Old Testament believers, like those priests. Maybe many of them were Old Testament believers. But they were enlightened when they understood that Jesus is the Christ that they were waiting for. And so it can be either or, either a salvation moment or a crossover moment for Old Testament believers to see the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. I like to use 2 Corinthians 4.4 as my illustration for... um, seeing the light, if you will. We even have, of course, modern day idioms and expressions. There's even a uh, kind of a, you know, the, the tune, I saw the light, I saw the light. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. All right, 2 Corinthians 4. And this is why Satan blinds the minds of the unbelievers. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to the perishing ones, in whose case the God of this world, that's the title for Satan, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so this is what Satan does. He tries to confuse things. He tries to muddy the waters and blind the unbeliever. 
All right. So that they might not see the light. And so we can use that. It's not hokey. I mean, it can be used in a hokey way, but it's not biblically hokey because it's biblical that to see the light is to, uh, to observe the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, to believe, to receive Christ, to receive eternal life. We also can use it as a crossover moment, a crossover moment for Old Testament believers to see the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. And this is, I believe, Paul's experience on the Damascus Road as recorded in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And if you've never heard this before, been taught this before, maybe this is new to you. It may be because everybody knows that uh, Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul. And it's even printed there in your uh, Bibles, the conversion of Saul. Well, the pericope headings are published by the Lockman Foundation or whoever publishes your, your uh, modern English Bibles. The pericope headings are not in the Greek manuscripts. <laughs> And as you read through here, uh, you know, read carefully, watch with me, uh, show me where the word believe shows up, because it's not there. And uh, if Paul is getting saved here without believing, then we've got a problem, because there's no other way to get saved than to believe, all right? And uh, Saul is breathing threats and murder, and it's not enough that he's ravaging uh, the church in Jerusalem. He's going to expand his jurisdiction, even crossing Roman provincial lines in a way that's completely illegal in Roman law, to drag people back to Jerusalem for trial. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And so he saw the light, right? He can sing the song now. But he was enlightened, literally, and metaphorically. But his answer is not, or his question is not, what must I do to be saved? His question is, who are you, Lord? And that is exactly what every crossover has to do. Every crossover, every Old Testament believer who is going to cross over into the church age has to do so identifying with Jesus as the Messiah with Jesus as the Christ. You don't have to get saved a second time. You can't get saved a second time. And so the, the imperative is not believe, but the imperative is actually confess, to repent and be baptized. They have to change their views regarding the Messiah, and they have to be baptized to identify with the body of Christ in the New Testament. And so we see it here. As he was traveling, it happened, he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That question there is so convicting given what he was doing, what he was actively involved doing. He thought he was serving the Lord and the Lord just told him, you're persecuting me. And this immediately leaves him with this trembling question. He said, who are you? Lord, who are you, Lord? He knows what he's doing. He thought he was serving. He was more jealous for his ancestral traditions. He was more exceedingly zealous. He was going to be the most ravenous wolf the tribe of Benjamin ever saw. And uh, in so doing, he was serving the Lord, or so he thought. Instead of serving, he's persecuting. And now he realizes, oops, wait a minute. Who are you, Lord? And, uh, and I kind of wonder, I mean, this has been on his mind. This has been something he's been pondering. He's heard the testimonies. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He heard the entire testimony of Stephen, that Jesus is the Christ. And he's still in this mindset, no, he can't be the Christ. The Pharisees say he's a heretic. The Pharisees say he's a blasphemer. The Pharisees say he's, uh, he's uh, not the Christ, and I'm a Pharisee. He's towing the party line. And uh, And yet, the first question out of his mouth is, who are you, Lord? He's asking the question because he's got something in his mind that knows that the party line may not be right. That the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whole Sanhedrin that crucified the Christ, they may have crucified him knowing he was the Christ. So who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Because when you persecute the bride, you persecute the head. You persecute Christ. When one member suffers, we all suffer. You're persecuting Christ. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now, there's there's no gospel call here. There's no invitation to get saved. There's no believe in me and thou shalt be saved. As I say, I I think a little boy saw, being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, that he was raised by believing parents in Tarsus, and he became a believer himself. He told Timothy that. He said, from childhood, you've known the sacred scriptures that are able to lead you to salvation. And so uh, he enters into the city. And while he's there, he's praying. And uh, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. That's not how he imagined he'd go storming into the place. But this, is, uh, this was the Lord's plan. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Why three days? I find that interesting. All right. And then a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Ananias is sent to Paul, but not to evangelize him. Again, I think this is just, it's not difficult. You can read it for what it says. The problem is nobody does that. People read it for what they want it to say or what they think it says. Ananias does not go there to preach the gospel. He goes there to identify with Saul and that's part of the body of Christ and to cross him over into the New Testament. So he's not a convert, he's a crossover in this chapter. So uh, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. All right, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. He's praying. And God sends him a vision. And his vision is Ananias. So Ananias better obey because this is what God said was going to happen. But Ananias said, uh, really? <laughs> Lord, I love this. this. This cracks me every time I read this. But Lord, um, I've heard about from many about this man. <laughs> Can you imagine? Telling the omniscient God what you've heard. <laughs> As if maybe he hasn't heard the same thing you've heard. Maybe he's not aware you know, Lord, I've heard about this guy and, and, and from many about this guy. I think it's true. I've heard it from so many. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And that's remarkable too. How did they know that? They knew that all the way in Damascus from the conspiracy that was launched in Jerusalem. The Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There is not a gospel hint anywhere in those words. He's, but he's being ushered into the body of Christ. He's crossing over into the church age. He's being called as a ap- church age apostle. And he can't be a church age apostle if he stays back in the Old Testament. And so Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. So this was not his salvation moment. Galatians, by the way, proves it, that he was saved in his childhood. This is his crossover moment from being an Old Testament believer to being a New Testament believer. So when the author of Hebrews says, remember the former days after being enlightened, he could be talking to converts or crossovers or a mixture of both. You endured a great conflict of suffering. The number one population group in the first century to experience collective punishment for their new identification was Jewish believers and the persecution they encountered for supposedly abandoning Judaism the number one population group. There were Gentile converts who faced hostility to a point. They faced uh, a similar hostility to a point. 
But even the similar hostility they faced to a point was a reflection of the much greater hostility that the Jewish believers faced when they named the name of Christ and crossed into the church age. So the number one population group in the first century to experience collective punishment for the new identification. And this is something too that we may have in our country coming up. This is something that we've not experienced since our founding, since our colonial days, since the original uh, settlers were all God-fearing, Bible-believing, many of them, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians uh, to a point whereby when you name in the name of Christ, your culture ostracizes you. We're approaching those days now, and in some cases we're already there, depending on your career field or your uh, academic background and things like that. Naming the name of Christ can be very detrimental to certain um, facets of our culture today. What happens when that that extends everywhere across the board? What, uh, you know, we say that's going to be a terrible thing for our country. Well, probably, but I think some good will come out of it. I think there will be a lot of uh, legitimate believers that will have to open their eyes and say, I'm paying this price because I named the name of Christ. Well, a lot of um, cultural go-along, get-along types, um, push will come to shove. And I think the true disciples of Jesus Christ will shine forth. And so um, as much as I'm not welcoming these coming days, uh, I can see some good that uh, the Lord will produce through it, if that makes any sense. All right, but for abandoning Judaism, for betraying Moses, all these labels that could be thrown at them. And the same thing, when you, when you buck the trends of your group, when you, uh, you know, because you're expected to vote a certain way and now you're a traitor because what are you doing that for? You're expected to do a certain thing and then now you're a traitor to your, your race or your sex or whatever. Um, they were not abandoning Moses. Moses prophesied this very day. They were, in fact, faithful to Moses. It was the Pharisees that were abandoning Moses that had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Let's look at Acts chapter 21. Enduring a great conflict of sufferings, partly by having their property seized. The things they went through. Can you imagine? So, Today, if an evangelist leads you to the Lord and says, all right, now if we, when you name the name of Christ, we're going to baptize you. We'll go down to Barton Springs. We'll baptize you. And then, oh, by the way, the uh, city of Austin is going to condemn your house. You're going to lose your property. Now, well, there you go. All right, Acts 21. Chapter 21. And uh, in one of his trials here, he's giving this uh, defense. Acts 21, 17 says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. So here's Paul trying to celebrate the great work he's doing among the Gentiles. And James and the elders are telling him, "Um, Paul, we've got a problem here. The problem here is these Jews and they've heard about you and here's what they've heard. And what they've heard is you're counseling the uh, rejection of Moses, the abandonment of Moses. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So they said, you have a problem and we have a problem because you're here with us. (laughs) All right. Now, this is interesting to me because this is not the attitude that the author of Hebrews is speaking about when he's writing to the Hebrews recipients. He says, when you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering and you joyously accepted the seizure of your property. 
they were not uh they didn't they weren't having this compromising attitude this kind of uh this 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 approach that is being expressed here in this chapter let's see what else happens here so what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come therefore do this that we tell you we have four men who are under a vow what is that well, the Nazarite vows from the Old Testament was a facet of the law. We have no such procedure in the New Testament. There's no such uh, vow process that the church is ever given to do. In fact, we're told we're better off not to vow at all. We have four men here who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. In other words, pretend you're an Old Testament believer here for a day. Engage in this ritual, this water ritual, I mean, you know how to do it. You were used to be a Pharisee. You're all, you're all up to speed on this. Purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. Not, I mean, he's getting signed up for a vow he never made and now he's got to pay five times over for himself and these four guys. And you think that's going to make him happy? Anytime you compromise, anytime you do something, just go along, get with it and, you know, are they going to be pleased and satisfied? Never. Never. All right. So purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. We want everybody to get the impression that, Paul, you are observant of Mosaic law problem with that it's not true paul is not observant of the law he says we're not under law we're under grace he will on occasion be all things to all men he will be on occasion he'll submit to something for the sake of the jew but he will just as readily not submit to it for the sake of the gentile this whole thing is a fraud put on a show so that they can see a performance But concerning the Gentiles, we believe we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. So Paul took the man, and the next day, purifying himself with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Well, guess what? Read the next verse and find out it didn't work. The hands are still stirred up. They still lay hold of him. He's still under arrest. He's still going to be shipped off to Rome. So, so much for compromising and making people think what they're going to think. All right. Over to chapter 26. Another statement is made here. 26.17. When he defend, when he, he's recounting his own crossover experience he's relating the damascus road story i said who are you lord and the lord said i'm jesus whom you're persecuting but get up and stand on your feet for this purpose i have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen but also the things in which i will appear to you paul's going to receive mystery doctrine he's going to write most of the new testament rescuing you from the jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Now there's a darkness, of course, that the crossover needs, but then there's also, of course, the darkness that the convert needs to see the light in both cases. They may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Yeah, the Jewish believers, they had it rough. They were the traitors. And uh, the, early, the early Jewish converts faced uh, a lot of affliction from their own people for abandoning Moses. The last expression on this, I think, comes from Titus 1.10. Titus 1.10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of 
the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. The biggest adversaries in the early church were the Jewish people themselves, the very religious Old Testament Jewish believers themselves. Yet even Gentile converts faced hostility. And we see this in Galatians 3. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Galatians 3, verses 3 and 4. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? This is a largely Gentile church and they're suffering. They were suffering after being enlightened. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Likewise, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. Macedonians in Thessalonica, at the hands of their own countrymen. I think most of the Gentile Galatian affliction was also at the hands of the Jews. But 1 Thess 2.14 talks about your countrymen. Verse 13 says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The gospel is powerful. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so when the gospel goes forth and they accept it as the word of God, not the word of man, and they believe, it does its work. It it converts you. You're saved. You're born again. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So there was something comparable there in Thessalonica. Something comparable among the Macedonians there in Thessalonica, whereby when these folks named the name of Christ, that uh, they endured a great conflict of sufferings. Uh, Even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. So there's hostility. We face it. We face it maybe not as much culturally as in other places. Many countries in this world, naming the name of Christ sets you up for death, sets you up for uh, the seizure of your property. Um, but we can face it on a more limited basis among our family sometimes. There's, a, uh, there's hostility if uh, you know, they're unbelievers and you name the name of Christ. Well, what are you doing that for? Uh, maybe even if there's a religious background especially, like why are you leaving the Catholic Church? Uh, what are you, a traitor to your church? You know, why do you need... What are you telling me you got saved for? You're already saved. You're already a believer. You're already, they won't say that. They'll say, you're already in the mother church. You're already in the right church. What is this saved you're talking about? Things of that nature. The seizure of property, imprisonment. Imprisonment and property seizure is placed in great perspective not only here but throughout the new testament it's placed in perspective here it'll come back again in chapter 13 imprisonment and property seizure especially in a in a culture whereby collective punishment was normal whereby not only are they after you but they're after those who are with you uh, because you're going to lead them to the next who can lead them to the next who can lead them to the next so they can root out this heresy, so they can, they can stamp out this, this sect, if you will, called the way. Again, they personally experienced it and they shared in the sufferings of others. I like that. You showed sympathy. So it says in verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle. 
a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. What do you think happened to those priests in Acts chapter 7? Can you imagine? They got defrocked. They got their robes stripped off. They got expelled from the temple. Imagine. I think, uh, for example, Saul of Tarsus was married until his crossover event. According to Josephus, according to the secular records, you cannot be a voting member of the Sanhedrin without being a married man of at least 30 years of age. The Bible's silent about it. I think the intimations of Paul's single life uh, does hint at a past marriage and hints at a present state of being divorced. But if the, if the tradition is true that, that Saul of Tarsus was married in Acts chapter 7 and that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not married after Acts chapter 9, what happened in the meantime? Well, just like the defrocked priests, I can very easily see the, the tribe of Benjamin coming along, can very easily see the school of Hillel coming along and granting an immediate annulment of Mrs. Paul's marriage. In fact, granting a complete property seizure of anything that was Saul's to give to her. And he's expelled from their, their uh, culture in any event. So partly by being made a public spectacle, the tar and feathers and all the other things we can think about, um, through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Maybe uh, they missed you. They hit the guy next to you. How do you respond to that? Say, do you just go, whew, glad that wasn't me. You know? I loved it in boot camp. My, uh, the guy that had the bunk below me was six foot six, 345 pounds. It was huge from Sherman, Texas. And I was five foot six, 130 pounds. And uh, <laughs> he got a lot of attention. And I stood next to him a lot and behind him a lot, and I was overlooked a lot. <laughs> Part of my tactic for surviving boot camp. <laughs> but the fact is, when they say partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, means you are identifying. That means when the guard says, wait a minute, you're one of them, aren't you? Remember Peter? You too are a Galilean, aren't you? And what does Peter say? Oh, no, no, I don't know the man. Denied the Lord three times. The early church was expected to, not, to confess and not deny. To become sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You know, even today. Even today, you go to a Turkish prison today, they don't feed their inmates. Family brings you food. Or they don't. If you don't have family to feed you, yeah, then it kind of becomes a survival of the fittest inside the jail. you got to take the food away from somebody who got food brought to them. Showed sympathy to the prisoners. Yes, I identify with them. Accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So whatever they take, ask yourself, Do I love that more than I love the Lord? Do you love me more than these? Over to chapter uh, 13. Remember the prisoners. Remember the prisoners. It says, uh, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I think in the church age, the God of grace dispatches a lot of undercover humans that aren't even human, angels posing as humans to test our grace, to test our hospitality. And we can end up entertaining angels and not knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. When one member suffers, we all suffer. That's to be the hard attitude. That's love, one for another. Romans 8.18. I think the author of Hebrews was clearly associated with Paul, traveled with Paul, learned from Paul, probably had memorized everything Paul had ever written. 
And if it was Luke, if Luke was the author of Hebrews, then Luke was also the scribe, the amanuensis, for the pastoral epistles and clearly traveled with Paul in uh, much of the second and third missionary journeys. But it says in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of the present time, including the seizure of your property. What's that? It's not worthy to be compared. We're storing up treasure in heaven where thieves don't break in and steal, where moth and rust don't destroy. Sufferings of this present time, not worthy to be compared. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Momentary, light afflictions are producing for us. Notice it's productive. This is the means of production. The momentary light afflictions is what does the producing. Say, well, I don't like it. Okay, you don't have to like it. But you have to endure it. You have to submit to it. It's what the Lord has called for you to do. And it is productive. God knows what He's doing. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Isn't that beautiful? Momentary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Keep your eyes on the invisible. Keep your spiritual eyes on the spiritually visible. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And guess what? You've got the eternal eyes to see the eternal unseen things. It's a wonderful truth. A lasting possession. A lasting possession will be expanded later in the celebration of an unshakable kingdom. We just have a little glimpse of it here in 10.34, Hebrews 10.34, but it's expanded in Hebrews 12. Accepting joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. A lasting possession. The Bible does some great things for us. It takes things like silver and gold and calls them perishable. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls silver and gold perishable, the things that we call precious metals. We call them precious. The Bible calls them perishable. And everything in this world is perishable. You can't take it with you and it's slated for destruction anyway. It's perishable. But what we have is a lasting possession. What we are uh, anticipating to receive in our inheritance in Christ and also in our rewards. A lasting possession and imperishable. And so it's uh, introduced here in verse 34, a better possession and a lasting one. In chapter 12, We're going to have a celebration there of our unshakable kingdom. Tease you with what we'll have coming up here in a couple chapters. He says in verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This is the final warning passage, and it's coming from heaven. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has once promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain When he destroys the heavens and the earth with fire and rebuilds all things new, it is a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. We have a response. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. All we can do is appreciate what God has done and live the grace life accordingly. 
Since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. We are grace responders to the grace we've been given, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So, enjoying the seizure of your property. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is the application. Don't throw it away. We're expected to walk with confidence. He's done the work. We're in this marvelous position. Remember the former days? You're going to make all that a waste of time? Keep on. Keep on keeping on. Don't throw away your confidence. All of that was preparing you for now. And guess what? What you're going through now is preparing you for what's coming up. So don't lose heart now. Don't ever lose heart. Don't throw away your confidence. No one can take it from you, but you can sure throw it away. When God has provided for us all things necessary for life and godliness, there is nothing that's out of our control as far as what God has given us. They can't take it from you. Satan can't take your armor off, but you can take it off yourself. Your confidence, you can throw it away yourself. Your eyes, you can get them off the Lord by yourself. So do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. These uh, recipients, the Hebrew epistle, the Hebrews epistle recipients demonstrated a confidence, at least for a time. Back in the former days, they sure did. It's just the present moment that they're on the verge of throwing it all away. It's at the present moment that a, a segment of these people are considering going back to Jerusalem. They're considering going back to Judaism. They're considering returning back to their Levitical priesthood as if maybe they'll take them back. Who knows? I mean, think how pathetic it was for the Exodus generation. They wanted to go back to Egypt. I don't think the Egyptians would have taken them, but okay. But to go back to the Levitical priesthood, to go back to law, to go back to Moses, when really they're following Moses by following Christ. So don't throw away your confidence. They demonstrated a confidence at least for a time and up to a certain intensity. And that's good. That's all to their credit. But it does not guarantee that they're going to have victory this time. And it does not guarantee that they're always going to have victory down the road. Each test becomes a whole new test. at least for a time and up to a certain intensity, but they were on the verge of throwing it all away. On the verge of throwing it all away. And this weighs on my heart. I pray about this. This is something we, we watch. This is something uh, as we raise our children, of course, and we, uh, we watch their testing as children and then young adults and then the testing they've got to face in their own adult capacity when they're out of the home. With we, this is on my heart when it comes to men in training in the seminary, in the training ministry. And you watch them faithful. You watch them endure. You watch them as their student pastors. You watch them as they're learning their Greek and their Hebrew and preaching their first sermons. And you're watching as they are developing. And as you watch faithfulness, as you watch confidence, as you watch these things, it's, uh, it's, it's all positive. It's an encouragement. It's all the, the, the necessary preparation to approach ordination and, and placement in ministry. Not a guarantee, of course, of what they'll do once they're in the ministry. But if they're not faithful in little things, the Lord will never trust them with bigger things. If they blow it in the seminary testing, then we see they're not ready for the ministry testing. And this is what's happening here. The, the recipients of this epistle, they handled the early days great. But now they're on the verge of throwing it all away. And that's heartbreaking. Because you think, what could this church do? What could these believers do? 
if they were faithful then and if they stay the course now, if they stay the course now, what, how might the Lord use them in the coming years? In the coming, uh, because there is a tremendous time of darkness about to hit Jerusalem. They're going to, you know, these guys that want to return to Jerusalem just in time to get killed? Because the Romans are going to surround it. They're going to destroy the temple. Everyone's getting killed. And uh, the Jewish people in dispersion, the, the Jewish diaspora, they're going to need these guys. They're going to need believers that are solid, believers with truth, Jewish believers with a, with a uh, Jewish background that can teach them the truth of Jesus Christ. There's a great reward, yet they're on the verge of throwing it away. You know, and it says, let no one take your crown. Those warnings are real. We talk about how, well, yeah, we we store up treasure in heaven, neither moth nor rust destroy, thieves don't break in and steal, but can you still throw it away? Yes, you can. Let no one take your crown. Hebrews 12, verses 4 and 5. We'll have this coming up as well. I'm kind of, yeah, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to wrap up chapter 10. We're going to move into chapter 11. Some of you have been waiting for this since the beginning of Hebrews because the hall of fame of faith is Hebrews chapter 11 and got all these great stories from the Old Testament. And okay, that's a fun chapter. And, and we go through the hall of fame and we see all these Old Testament heroes and then we fix our eyes on Jesus, the greatest example of any Old Testament hero. And then fixing our eyes on Jesus and considering Him. It says in 12.3, Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Again, a warning. Not losing salvation, but losing heart. Falling short. Throwing away your confidence. Throwing away your reward. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Ooh. That is foreshadowing. <laughs> that is a hint. As they remember the former days, they endured a lot. But only to a point, only to a certain severity level, they hadn't reached this point yet. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. How could they forget this? They were priests, they were Levites, they were Bible teachers. They were experts in the law and they forgot. Well, because quite frankly, we all forget. When we get caught up in subjectivity, we get caught up in our testing instead of keeping our eyes on the Lord, we forget a lot of things we should know otherwise. You forgot the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. You forgot that. So get your eyes back on that. Submit to the discipline. Thank God for the discipline. And don't throw away your confidence. At least for a point, but now they're on the verge of throwing it away. They've forgotten this admonition. They've forgotten that it's a loving Father who's disciplining them we, uh, we cannot forget this. Remember the temporal confidence that we have? We have confidence to enter the holy place. Temporal confidence prompts, every, prompts entry into the holy place. And everything done therein is eternally rewardable. When you throw away your confidence, you are revoking your own access to the holy of holies. You're not functioning in your priesthood in Christ. You're not standing before the Father's throne of grace. And so what just happened to all of your fruitfulness? What just happened to all of your rewardability? Say, so, well, can I reward? Can I get rewarded for things outside of the Holy of Holies? Not according to this text. All right. Show me another text. We'll look at it. What is rewardable? What is not rewardable? See, all is lawful, but not all is profitable. And I think there's a lot of things believers do because they have the liberty to do it. But if you're banking on some reward when you get there, you're going to find out, no, that, all that stuff was lawful but not profitable. What's profitable is what's rewarded. What's rewarded is what's done in Christ. 
And so we have this. Back in 1019, we saw the confidence. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Remember, we are living priests bringing as living stones, bringing a living sacrifice. You want to lay up treasures in heaven? That's where it's done. Rewardable. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 1 Corinthians 15.58. I'm running out of time, goodness. 1 Corinthians 15.58. Where did the time go? I didn't even give you one Scrabble story. <laughs> Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, in the Lord. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the admonitions that are given. Thank you for the blessings of Hebrews chapter 10, the glories of standing within the veil, of standing in your Shekinah glory. Father, I thank you for our Savior who went in as a forerunner, that he entered within the veil, that he permanently, eternally opened it, that we in him can stand before you. Not just one day a year, not just one guy one day a year with blood not his own, but all of us, all day, every day, by the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this powerful truth. I pray that you would open our eyes to see our priestly function, to see that we might uh, engage our priestly function in everything. We engage our priestly function in every service in Christ and help us to do so intelligently, actively, deliberately. I do thank you, Father, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.